And so I'm going to speak some words and help us settle into our bodies. We are so very good at being in our heads. We are such a rich, smart group of intellectuals, smart, smart people. And all of us also have bodies and emotions that we are in all the time and we don't often give recognition to. So I'm going to ask everybody as the lights come to a softer presence, if it feels right to you to either close your eyes or perhaps just take a soft focus at something in front of you and just begin to feel your body if you can find it. Perhaps feeling the back of your body against the back of your chair, if you happen to be sitting. Perhaps feeling the small pressure points in your butt as it sits on this chair. Or the firmness of the floor under you if you're standing or sitting. Knowing that the earth is also beneath this floor, holding us up, always supporting us. And maybe beginning to notice that there is actually breath coming into your body and leaving your body, and that there is movement in that. Some of you may want to experiment with a slightly deeper breath than normal just to locate that breath and notice the lungs expanding and the lungs relaxing with each breath. How often do we go through our days just letting our body take over and do that for us without ever really noticing or being present? And as we stay in our bodies then, I'm going to read some words from a UUA colleague, Anna Bethay, who identifies as a Japanese-American woman. And at the UUA, she is an outreach associate. And as an introduction, she offers these words. There is a body of work that focuses on the implicit associations we make in our bodies tied to emotional response. These associations are our gut reactions and take precedent over and are often more powerful than our rational intellect. And I might just interject in her words. I've done some reading in neurobiology, and those professionals agree with this stance. The emotions are actually a physiological event in our body. So back to Anna's words. If we are to change the way we perceive ourselves and others, it is helpful to come to terms with what our bodies are telling us about our beliefs, and about our narratives. So reconnecting with the breath, noticing the movement inside your bodies, 
take in these further words from Anna Bethay. Does your heart feel pierced when another person who looks like you or looks like your brother is gunned down, a spectacle commissioned by the people who swear an oath to protect your community? Does your mouth go dry, your throat close up, when you come face to face with a realization of your own perpetration of white cultural norms or an ignorance of other worthy ways of being? Or are you numb all over because your body has decided this is too much for you to bear? Your mind says go, your body says no. Does your stomach churn when Tufamia, your family, is hunted down and expelled from the places they risk to go to carve out a better life? Do your arms go numb when you feel helpless to do anything to console, to mend, to fix the injustices you see all around you? Or does your whole body ache, telling you to close into yourself, to cut ties with a world that is just too much? These are the effects of white supremacy on our bodies, yours and the others in this room. There is a place where these can be healed, in a beloved community which sees, hears, and experiences these ills alongside you, a beloved community that chooses to care, to get involved, to connect. This beloved community is the place where you can reclaim your time to process the horror and the disconnect the rest of the world would rather sweep under the rug. This is where you can belong because you are loved, not loved because you belong. In a beloved community, you'll be reminded of some truths that transcend the chaos and the oppression that the dominant culture denies that your body is free, that your mind is free. And your love is a gift, ready for the giving in every moment. You are the one we've been waiting for to take part, build, and bolster this community for any who seek refuge. You are the one we've been waiting for. And re-entering perhaps then an awareness of your connection with your body, what might be felt in your stomach, your legs, your 
jaw, your back. And we're just going to stay silent and quiet for a couple more minutes to let all of these words sink in and allow you to notice whatever body sensations may be happening in your particular body right now. Duro Farrar is the music director at First Unitarian Church in Portland, Oregon. And last spring, he shared with that congregation a reflection on what it is like to be a black man serving a predominantly white congregation, especially when they sing black songs. And I think it's important to lift up his voice and share it with you all today. I am that I am. I am male. I am cisgender. I am queer. I am Christian. I am young-ish. <laughs> I am a musician. I am black. Of these, there is nothing that you notice more than that I am black although that I am male might come close. There's nothing that excites you more than that I am black, although that I am queer might come close. <laughs> there is nothing that you are more fearful of than that I am black, although that I am Christian might come close. <laughs> I don't say any of this with any shame. I, I love my blackness. The idea that blackness has been resilient enough to survive whiteness generation after generation, century 
after century is enough to make me want to flaunt my blackness loudly and proudly. That is, unless there is any tax-funded badge-bearing firearm nearby. <laughs> no, I love my blackness, but I am aware of it constantly. I am aware even of your whiteness responding to it constantly. I am aware even in this moment that whiteness is urging some of you to figure out how you will pin me down after the service to tell me that I am wrong about you. I love my blackness, but I am aware that it has been diluted uh, by a need to move more easily throughout the white life I have built around myself. Yes, my blackness has been diluted in certain ways so that I can move more easily. More easily, that is, for you. The music that the choir will sing this morning is challenging for me. It was challenging for me when I reluctantly chose it last November to pair with the original sermon topic, which was Peace Like a River. And it is even more challenging for me now. The song Peace Like a River is a Negro spiritual that white people turned into a children's song because of how easily it lends itself toward added verses and silly hand movements. But it is a spiritual out of the American slavery era rather, the American slavery tradition that talks about how black slaves needed to put up a front before their white oppressors for fear that expressing their true emotions would have dire or even fatal results. You see, rivers look peaceful from the land, but they are extremely busy and often violent under the surface. Peace like a river is about showing peace and feeling rage. Mac Wilberg is a white Mormon arranger who has set this piece absolutely beautifully, but in a way that clearly demonstrates he doesn't get it. <laughs> and in Come in Peace is extraordinarily well written and really fun to sing. However, it is written by a white Canadian man, Brian Tate, who has made his entire living by imitating black and brown music for white use. I fully realized that programming this music was my choice. But I also realized that I could easily hide knowing that you wouldn't have known any of this if I didn't tell you. Further, part of my job is to spend your money tangled in white expressions of fear and scarcity mentality very carefully. And sometimes that means choosing the piece that is already in the library over purchasing something more ethically secure. Indeed, you did just hear me suggest that a common function of whiteness is choosing financial security over ethical security. Now, none of this should discourage you from enjoying the music this morning. Again, it has been skillfully crafted, and the Chalice Choir has worked very hard to prepare it so that it might bring added meaning to your worship. However, when I enter this white space, these are the sorts of things I get to sit with and wrestle with while most of you are able to sit and remain oblivious, and contently so. When you ask me what white privilege is, I would say it is this power you have to not notice. When you ask me what white supremacy is, 
I would say it is this power that you have to be angry when I notice. Just a few more weary days and then I'll fly away to a home where joy shall never end. I'll fly away. moment to digest that, perhaps. I want to share with you some words from Lila Ibrahim, a member of RUU denomination. Messy and imperfect beloved community. I have been going to the same church for a very long time. For nearly 30 years, most Sundays, I have walked through our beautiful redwood doors. In all those years, I filled a variety of leadership positions, from owl teacher to board president, usher coordinator to stewardship co-chair. And in all those years, my congregation has had ample opportunity to disappoint me. I'm disappointed when people don't think my justice project is the one we should collectively work on. I'm disappointed when people want different music than I do. I'm disappointed that we don't all agree that our children's ministry is the most important priority in the church. I'm disappointed that people don't give enough time, talent, or treasure to the church as I do. I'm disappointed, well, you get the idea. In nearly nearly 30 years of relationship, there have been lots of disappointments. Two or three times over the years, I've been so disappointed that I seriously questioned remaining in my congregation. I've wondered if church is actually real. I have doubted its ability to provide the salvation of which we speak, that beloved community. On those occasions, I have thought, screw it. I can just stop going to church for a while or forever. By staying away, but staying away has never helped me through such times. Rather, coming in closer 
telling people about my spiritual crisis, listening, sharing, caring, and worshiping have helped me know that this is where I belong. Even when church is the source of my frustration and disappointment. Because we are not a church, not in church, to be with people who want to sing the same music or rally for the same cause or attend the same retreats. We are in church to learn to love better. And learning to love better can only happen when we love past our disappointments and return to a place of acceptance and affirmation. This is true in our personal lives, in our work lives, and in our church lives. It is a deep spiritual practice. At my best, as a religious person, as a Unitarian Universalist, I'm called to love whoever else walks through these doors. I don't need to like everyone. Not everyone is who I would choose for a friend. Not everyone agrees about what we are here to do. But if I am living up to my best values, I offer care and respect and commitment to each member, friend, and guest of my beloved community. In the end, we can all try our best to live our faith as Unitarian Universalists through study, conversation, service, and commitment. We forgive ourselves and forgive others as we stumble through. We disagree, we annoy, we flake out on one another. And we worship, we support, we hold, and we affirm one another. There's really only one choice between imperfect community and no community. Again and again, we are all called to choose to commit ourselves to building a more just, a more diverse, and yet ever messy and imperfect beloved community. And now I'm going to read the words of Reverend Elizabeth Wen, who is a queer Vietnamese American and a proud Midwesterner. She is the ministry associate for youth and young adults of color at the UUA. For Wen, I really don't want to learn this. Spirit, I would really rather not learn this didn't think I needed to. I thought someone else could do it. Thought a leader was coming to do it. Thought the young people could do it, or the elders could do it, or the professionals. Or I don't want to learn it because it means letting go of something I hold dear. Letting go of being someone who knows the answers. Letting go of being someone who doesn't know. Letting go of the way I see the world. 
letting go of how I might have to change, letting go of certainty, of logic, of facts, of control, of the myth that you can live on this earth and not harm, or the myth that I can't learn anything new. Help me to learn it, please, and then help me to live what I learned and do the right by the gift of being taught. Help me to learn it, please. And then help me to live what I have learned and do right by the gift of being taught. As I worked with members of this church, with members of the anti-oppression, anti-racism, multiculturalism committee on this service, we decided today not to do an intellectual analysis of systemic racism, transfer that to your brains as best we could. We could. That sort of analysis is worthy and important, and if you want to grow in that way, let us know and we can help you in that direction. Instead, we decided to show you an attempt to do the work, an effort to be more anti-racist in real and tangible ways. So this is our attempt this morning, to show what we are learning and doing right by the gift of being taught. So this morning, we attempted to have a more anti-racist worship experience. Engaging our bodies is part of that. The expectation that worship is a time to be mostly still and mostly quiet is primarily a white expectation, primarily a white upper middle class expectation. And yeah. And many Unitarian Universalists of color or of different class backgrounds have said that this expectation is deeply alienating for them. They you know, come to our tradition because they love what we say and who we say we are and the ideas, and then they come to worship and they're let down by the cultural trappings of what actually happens here. This doesn't happen for everyone, but it happens pretty often. And it's important to remember that our worship style is actually not a theological statement. It is a cultural one. So the quiet and the stillness is part of that. And this is part of holding up a mirror to ourselves. Yes. And trying out a new way of being. But there are other ways, other learnings we're trying to show this morning. So over the past year or so, I've been doing a lot of learning and thinking and talking with colleagues about how our congregations worship together, what we do when we gather at 1045 on Sunday morning, and, and about how we might do this with more awareness, more integrity, more connection to our values. And there have been some experiments, some more successful than others. It's challenging, and we are learning a lot. So when I first saw the testimony from Duro Ferrar that I showed you earlier, I thought to myself, well, with, even with all this work, 
I still messed it up. See, last month our water service, which many of you were here for, was built around the hymn, Peace Like a River. And many of you were there and sang the verses with me, and you were encouraged you heard me encourage people to do the silly hand movements that some of us learned at summer camp. Because I didn't know the history of that song last month. I didn't need to know it, really. It was in our hymnal. I picked it out. And so part of my regret is that I think the service would have been better had I known that story. The irony of peace like a river being peaceful on the surface while raging underneath is powerful. It would have been a better service if that was part of the story. I've always wondered what peace like a river actually meant. So as Unitarian Universalists, we affirm that truth comes in many forms from many communities. We lift up all the world's wisdom traditions, literally, in this quilt hoisted behind me. We lift up the teachings of science, the words and deeds of prophetic people, and personal experience as sources of our faith. So your worship leaders, Savannah, me, volunteers, try to incorporate a wide variety of sources every week. And one of my New Year's resolutions last year was to incorporate something from a community or person of color every Sunday. Because it, if we're only holding up the work of white people, that says something really specific about who we are and what we value. So this has included our hymns and other music, readings, the stories we tell our children, the stories that I tell in the sermon. And every week we've been lifting up at least one non-white voice to say, this has meaning, this is worth listening to and learning from. And that is a powerful practice in our life together. And I kind of wish I would have told you before we got started so you would have known it was happening too. Uh, But I was feeling nervous about it. I didn't know if we could, which is an awful thing to have thought. And I wanted to see if we could do it, and I didn't want to show off my good white person bona fides until I felt like we could do it. So we, every, every Sunday I've led worship over the past 10 months, there's been something from a community or person of color as a central piece of the service. So all of this is powerful and it's really complicated. As we heard from Duro Farrar, it's complicated for him as a black man to lead a predominantly white choir in a predominantly white church singing songs in the black experience of slavery. In conversations with other religious leaders, especially religious leaders of color in our faith, I've heard this again and again with different variations. Sometimes it feels like a powerful act of solidarity and welcome when predominantly white churches sing songs and tell stories from communities of color or lift up the voices of people of color in other ways. And sometimes it's deeply alienating. Some of the difference comes with giving context, which we've been experimenting with this fall. It is important for us to know that our intro this morning is not just some random words that someone thought sounded nice together, but a Buddhist loving-kindness meditation. It's important to know the roots of the other songs we sing and the words we say, the stories behind the stories. So sometimes we've included information about who composed the day's music in the order of service, and sometimes we've given introductions before we sing or before we give readings. It's all an experiment. 
how do we do this with integrity? I don't have the answers, and I hope you'll join me in learning and exploring and experimenting together. Today we focus mostly on how we worship, examining our unvoiced expectations and trying new ways of being. So we offer this to you as an example, as something to try in your life, both here and at People's Church and in other areas. But what does this look like for me, you might wonder? I don't plan services. I don't pick hymns or readings or research the context behind them. So I have examples of what this could look like in your day-to-day -day life. And most of these are from Fernando Ospina and Elisa Lati, members of our community who work as anti-racism trainers. Most of these are designed for white people, though anyone can try them. So here are the experiments that I charge you with. When you are describing a person, their appearance to help someone else know who they are, try always including that person's race. Most white people only mention someone's race when that someone isn't white, which can communicate, usually unintentionally, that white people are the default setting. So talking about race more is powerful and can change the unintentional things that we communicate to one another. Those of you who are readers, be mindful about the race of the authors that you read. What if for every book by a white person, you read a book by a person of color? What if you decided for the next month or six months or year to only read books by people of color? If you are actively parenting in your life right now, maybe you and your children together could only read books by people of color for a season. There's lots of good books out there. So this could also be done with any other media that you consume. If you're a music lover or movies or television. Another experiment. When you are in a mixed race group, pay attention to how much room you are taking up, both physically and verbally. Is it your fair share? What percentage of the time are white people talking, and what percentage of the time are people of color talking? If you notice a persistent pattern over time and feel able to speak up in this group, maybe mention it to the whole group and start that conversation. Another experiment. When you have those moments when you realize that you did something that wasn't the best, that wasn't in keeping with your highest values, like I did when I learned about peace like a river, lean into it and learn from it. It's very easy to just ignore. Talk about it with someone. Usually not the someone, especially if it's a person of color who helped you realize it. It's not their job to help you process your feelings. But I can help you process if that's helpful for you. Another experiment is to notice when you are universalizing your own experience. So in my first draft of this sermon, I said something like, we all learned the hand motions to peace like a river at summer camp, which I know isn't true. I mean, that's assuming that everyone went to summer camp, which is not true, that everyone went to a summer camp that sang those songs, that everyone had the same hand gestures taught at their summer camp. So I had to pause, and as I looked it over, I say, oh, that's not true at all, and reword it. 
But we do this all the time. We say, oh, everyone knows this, or this is a song that everybody already knows the words to. Let's sing it. Or everyone remembers this historic moment, or whatever it is. So this is true in growing our diversity in all sorts of ways, race and age and class, national origin. And this is a really easy pattern to get into without thinking about it. But we know that our experience is not the one universal experience. So I invite you all to try some of these experiments and see what happens. And we know that none of these experiments will in themselves dismantle institutional racism and systemic white supremacy. We know that, but each of them helps us recognize those unvoiced expectations that are part of how institutional racism and white supremacy culture operate. We hope by experimenting in small ways in worship today, we might encourage you to experiment in your life, both in the congregation and beyond, in big ways and in small ways. It is sometimes uncomfortable, sometimes it's actually more comfortable to try out these new ways to be, and it is worth the effort. So the task ahead is big, the work is important, and we've all got to start somewhere. So let us be about the work. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.